take your Bibles at this time and, if you will, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're going to be uh, picking up there in verse 17 down through verse 26. The bulk of our attention will be on verses 20 through 26. So Luke chapter 6, I'm going to read though verses 17 through 26 as we continue our time in the Gospel according to Luke. Whether you're here, whether you're at home, if you find your way there, I want to begin reading here now in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord as we hear it together. This is what we read according to Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says, And he came down with them, Jesus did, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask now that you would open our eyes and our ears that we might glean from it that which you would teach us and instruct us in, that we might be more and more like Jesus. Father, help us now as we consider these important truths that we might be transformed by your grace to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does it mean to truly be happy? How would you answer that question? What does it mean to truly be happy? How do you find lasting happiness? sure that you could find many answers to that question, maybe even many different answers to that question here today. The world would certainly provide us many answers. True happiness found in friendships or income or status or success, material possessions, advancement. Maybe true happiness is found in a good doctor's report. Some of us even measure happiness today by the number of likes on a post. Wild, isn't it? We measure happiness by lots of different things, even us Christians. And most of the things that we use to measure happiness or to evaluate whether or not we are truly happy, most of those things are temporary and circumstantial meaning that much of the happiness being pursued today can be gone in an instant. 
We, we often pursue what I would call a fragile happiness. It's here one moment, gone the next. But what if? What if you could find a happiness, a state of blessing that transcended circumstances? That didn't ebb and flow from moment to moment, from relationship to relationship, from experience to experience. What if you could, what if you could find a, a state of blessing, a, a, a state of true and genuine happiness that wasn't dependent upon those things? What if you could find satisfaction that was in no way dependent upon your possessions or your successes? Well, you can. If you are a follower of Christ, I would say, based upon God's word, it's something you possess now. As a Christian, this is yours to enjoy. This is yours to experience. This is yours to know. Oftentimes we, we, we lose sight of that, but it's something you can truly know. Indeed, I think true and lasting happiness is something that only the believer can, can experience. In our text today, we come to what's often called, referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. So I picked up in verses 17 there as he came down and stood with them on a level place. Most agree that while very similar in content, this is not the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Same, similar themes. Jesus, we know, is an itinerant preacher of sorts. And so it would have been common for him to preach similar kinds of things in different locations, in different contexts. And he would refer to a lot of the same kinds of things. And so we think this is a different sermon in a different context, in a different place than was the Sermon on the Mount. So it's Sermon on the Plain versus the Sermon on the Mount. Regardless, we see a lot of similar themes. We see a lot of the same kinds of things that Jesus is instructing his disciples. And that's exactly what you see here as we see in verse 20 as he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So what we see in this sermon on the plain, we're going to continue, continue that sermon as we go into the weeks ahead, but we're going to begin here with what we know as the Beatitudes. Here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is equipping his followers, his disciples, by grounding them in kingdom values. In essence, he is clarifying what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And therefore, in this case, at this moment of his sermon, what it means, what it looks like to follow him, and therefore know or experience true blessedness or happiness, we could say. And as Jesus explains what it's like to follow him and to know true happiness, there are two things that I think we should see about this. First of all, when we're considering what it means, what does it look like to follow Jesus and know true happiness, what Jesus does is two things. He, first of all, he redefines our assumptions about happiness, and then he reorients our priorities. So the two points today. So for those of you at home, you can just kick back and put it on auto drive now, okay? He, he 
does two things. He redefines our assumptions and he reorients our priorities. Let's begin with how Jesus redefines our assumptions. You know, often our our sense of well-being and blessing happiness, as I said earlier, often tied to circumstances or I would say even false notions of happiness. I will just be happy if I could just have this. Then we get that, we find we're no longer happy. And basically what Jesus does here is he comes along and he flips our notion of happiness upside down. He, he, he says, if you wanna know what it's truly, what true happiness looks like, you're looking for it in all the wrong places. Notice what he says. So he's here in the Beatitudes in particular, he reveals who the truly happy are. And as he does that, he's redefining our working assumptions as to what determines what it means to be truly blessed or happy. Notice what he says. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Not what you would think when you think happiness, poverty, hunger, weeping, persecution. Those aren't the things that come to my mind when I think about being happy. And then he goes on later in the text, we'll see where he pronounces certain woes or curses. Notice what he says there, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Now, if you were to just take those two lists, poverty, hunger, weeping, persecution, being hated, Versus rich, being full, laughter, and liked. I mean, there's the two options you pick. There's not a person here on the surface of it all that would say, give me poverty, give me hunger, give me tears, give me persecution. None of us would say that on the surface level. Obviously, you're thinking, well, this is a sermon. You're going to get into why we should think that's a good thing in a minute, and of course, but just on the surface, we're not going after those things. Give me riches. Give me a full belly. Give me laughter. I want to be liked by people. That's what we want. And so what Jesus does is he turns our assumptions about happiness completely upside down. Completely. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated. Woe to the rich, the full, the laughing, the well-liked. Again, in speaking of blessing and woe, those two words, blessed and woe, blessed is those who are happy, those who have received God's favor and are experiencing his blessing versus woe, which is cursed, those who are cursed, those who are not recipients of favor, those who are in some form of judgment. And again, we look at these verses and are just, I mean, if you just read those and you come away thinking, wow, that's, that's great. 
I mean, I'll read those verses and I just slam on the brakes and think, what? That makes no sense to me. So what is Jesus doing here? What does he mean when he says, blessed are you who are poor? Blessed are you who are hungry now. Woe to the rich. Woe to you who are full. I mean, does he mean that in a strict, literal sense? Or is he using these terms with spiritual meaning? In other words, is he saying that if you want to be blessed, you must be poor, poverty. You must have low income. If you want to be blessed, you must be hungry. If you want to be blessed, you must live a life of weeping and tears. You must be hated. Is that what he's saying? Is it in a strict, literal sense that we should read these verses and say, if you want to be a recipient of the kingdom of God, you must be these things. Or we could say it this way, everyone who is poor, everyone who is hungry, everyone who's weeping, everyone who's persecuted in some way must be recipients of the kingdom of God. Is that what he's saying? Or is he using these terms in a, in a way to get at something more? Well, let me make a few comments about that. I think, when you examine the uses of these terms here and elsewhere in Luke's gospel, the terms of poverty or poor and rich, being, being poor and being rich, you cannot strip the social aspects of their meaning from this context. There is a social economical meaning here in these terms. And at the same time, there must be something more behind the terms than merely social economic standing. Let me explain. How do we get that? I mean, you've got two ways, a little lesson on Bible interpretation. You can come to this passage and you can say, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry for you shall be satisfied, etc. Woe to you who are rich. And you can say, that just doesn't make sense to me. There's no way that can be true. Therefore, I'm going to think it's going to mean whatever I want it to mean. Well, that's dangerous. So we begin to look at clues in the context for what is exactly, what is he meaning here? A couple of things just to point out to you. If, you. if you look at this passage, and what I'm doing is I'm trying to show you that while there is social economic meaning in these terms, there's also something more at play. Compare verse 25 to verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus is speaking to those who are hated because of him, persecuted, Christians. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Down in verse 25, he says, woe to you who laugh now. I don't know a person that's leaping for joy that's not also laughing. So we, we can't conclude that if you laugh, you're not a Christian. Some people <laughs> may look at some of us and think that. The more miserable you look, the mo- oh, you must be one of those Christians. That's a whole other sermon for another day. And we know that there are many examples in the Bible of those who were rich, they had wealth, 
and they followed the Lord. They believed in God. They part of the people of God. We think of David as an example. Job, Joseph of Arimathea, who would take up Jesus' cross. Zacchaeus, a wee little man, was a rich man. So these terms, poverty and rich, we know there seems to be more at play here than, than just the strict meaning of them because we know there are examples of rich people in the kingdom and there are examples of poor people who aren't in the kingdom. And when we think of the word laughter or weeping, we, we know that both those in the kingdom and outside of the kingdom experience these kinds of things. Yet, we can't simply spiritualize these verses and strip them of certain meanings that they have. You can go to examples and find that just within Luke's gospel alone. If you go to Mary's song, some say Mary was maybe the one, first one that, that had some of these themes from the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, and you see there even in, in Mary's song, there in chapter one, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You're talking about the humble estate. Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm, he's scattered the proud, he's brought down the mighty from their th thrones and exalted those of humble estates and filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent empty away. So you see themes there of richness and poverty. You can go to the parable of the sower in chapter 8. We know that it's a parable of the different soils. The seed falls among the different soils. Some was on the path. Some was among the, among the stony ground. Some seed fell among thorns, and it's in that situation. Verse 14, the seed falls among thorns. Jesus says, and as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. There Jesus uses the word riches just as it means, riches. The riches of this world, the material things of this world choke out the fruit of the gospel. People come so committed to their riches and their possessions and their things that they lose sight of Christ and fall away. Go to the rich man in Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 or Luke chapter 18, the rich ruler where Jesus concludes there, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So you see just in Luke's gospel alone how he uses poverty and riches in their actual meaning of socioeconomic kinds of things. So point being, pulling all this back, there does seem to be social economic backdrop behind these terms, but not without some other deeper meaning as well. Luke spoke a lot about the poor, now the kingdom was built among such people, and yet we know that while the gospel blesses those who are poor, it's not limited to the materially poor. In fact, none of you here sitting today, if, if, if what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich, all of us would be under a woe, every single one of us. Filthy rich. You may think, well, you hadn't seen my bank account. I don't have to. You drove here today. 
compared to most people in the world. We live in one of the wealthiest regions of not just the United States, of the world. So if it was true that for everyone who was rich, that you were under a woe, we would be in deep trouble today. So we know that there's more to it. Like what Jesus is getting at here is that our sense of well-being, our sense of happiness is often marked by things, by material possessions, by riches. And that's not what defines true happiness. I think his word here to us is that riches and worldly comforts will often eclipse our need for him. And it's the poor, oftentimes, not all of the poor, but some who are poor, who often see their need of Jesus much sooner because they have nothing else to cling to, to mask their needs. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor, he means the kingdom of God belongs to those who find their sense of worth and value in Christ and not their things. Now remember, he's speaking primarily here to his disciples. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So he's instructing them. A lot of folks in this, this day and time would have been poor. A lot of the crowds gathering to hear him preach would have been among those impoverished in some way. And if they weren't, they would certainly face times, especially as a disciple, going forward for the sake of the kingdom, where they would face times of hunger, times of weeping and persecution. And so Jesus is equipping them to understand that the reality of true and lasting happiness is not circumstantial. It's not built upon the things of this world. It's built upon Christ. I think it's an important word for us here today in Southern Maryland. We live in a highly educated, highly affluent part of the world. And friends, we should especially be careful that we are not seeking to be satisfied by worldly possessions. When we hear that, woe to those who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You hear that as a warning. Friends, if we're honest, if we were dealing with odds, the odds are quite high for folks like you and me to be much more in line with verse 24 than we are in verse 20. And Jesus is simply reminding us and his followers to not define true happiness and blessing based upon earthly possession or achievements. What does a blessed person look like? What does a happy person look like? Don't define that by your income. Don't define that by your social status or standing or career or advancement or relationships, human relationships. These things are not indicators of true and lasting happiness. What makes a disciple distinct from the world is not what we possess materially, but what we possess eternally. So, he redefines our assumptions, kind of flips upside down our expectations. And by the way, flies right into the face of the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? The health, wealth gospel, 
flies right into the face of that. False teaching that has led so many people astray. They look to see what they have. I mean, how can you read the Beatitudes and, and believe in a prosperity gospel? Number two, second point. Not only does he redefine our assumptions, he reorients our priorities. Now, we've seen how Jesus asserts that true blessing happiness are not found in material things, flips those assumptions upside down. And as he does so, he reorients us to keep before us that which truly matters. Blessedness or happiness doesn't look like what you think it looks like. To be clear, let me, let me, let me be clear. He's not saying that it is sinful to make money. He's not saying it's sinful to have stuff or to even enjoy those things. He's simply saying that these things are not indicators of true happiness, of true blessing. Again, Jesus is warning us not to look to circumstances or earthly comforts as a hope, as a source of lasting joy and happiness, but rather to look to him to find that. Another thing Jesus is doing here is he's explaining how his disciples are distinct from the world. One of the obvious differences between a follower of Jesus and those who are part of the world is found in what we treasure. Whatever it is we treasure, we will often orient our lives around it. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. What you treasure, you will orient your life around. We all do that. Think about the, the friends and neighbors that we have. Those who aren't Christian, they, they live their life in the world and they live their life for the world. They pursue satisfaction, they, they pursue happiness in possessions, in relationships, in success, anything you can think of. They crave satisfaction and happiness and they try to find it in the things of this world. Maybe that's been your own experience. Maybe that is your own experience even now that you're, you're desperately longing to be happy. You're let, desperately longing to be blessed, to be satisfied. And you've been looking and you've been searching and you've been trying to find it. And you find it maybe for a week or a month or a year or a few years and then it's gone again. And therefore, you start to look for it elsewhere. It's fleeting. Jesus says, true and lasting happiness is not found in those things, it's found in me. And friends, when you find your true joy and satisfaction in Jesus, then poverty, hunger, weeping, persecution will not cause you to wonder if you've somehow missed it. I think that's his point. If your satisfaction and happiness is rooted in Christ, then if you happen to be poor, if you happen to be weeping, if you happen to be hungry, if you happen to be hated because of Christ, then these things will not cause you to think, I must have missed it somehow. He's preparing his disciples to encounter all of these things in the world that they may face. And he's saying to them, if you encounter these things, don't think for a moment that you've not found true and lasting happiness because it's not found in those things. It's found in me. In fact, Jesus promises that when he is the source of our happiness, then we are blessed. 
blessed are those who are hungry now. Why? For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are those who are hated, reviled, spurned, excluded. For your reward will be great in heaven. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Two things here quickly that Jesus does as he reorients our priorities. Number one, he clarifies the present. Again, he speaks of present realities. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate and exclude and revile and spurn your name on account of Christ. He's saying present difficulties do not mean absence of blessing. Again, it's complete opposite of the prosperity gospel. Complete opposite. He's saying, you may experience these things, but don't think that the absence of wealth, the absence of food, the absence of laughter, the absence of being liked, welcomed, means that somehow you are outside of the kingdom. Those who are poor, yours is the kingdom. Those who hunger now, shall be satisfied. So again, you see how he's working us through. Jesus, again, is preparing his disciples so that they would not misunderstand where the true source of blessing rested. Even if they had sufficient possessions now, they would face times of want. They would face hunger. They would weep. They would be persecuted. Tradition tells us that all of them, exception of one maybe, ended up being martyrs for the cause of the gospel. Do you think that even if they were dying as a martyr, that at that moment somehow that they, would, that they would wonder if God had abandoned them at that moment after they'd spent their lives for the kingdom? They may have had plenty before, but now at the end of their life, they've been stripped of everything that they have, and they're now dying a cruel death. Do you think at that moment they were tempted to think, did I miss it somehow? They could have been, but Jesus is equipping him here, saying don't, don't think that the absence of comfort means the absence of blessing. They needed to know that present suffering in the world could not, if you are a disciple, again, he's talking to the disciples, if you are following Jesus, the absence of temporary comforts does not mean the absence of God's kindness and provision. Friend, when you find your satisfaction in Jesus, happiness cannot be taken from you or hindered by circumstances. Sorts of true blessing, true blessedness. Comes from seeing Jesus, this this idea of true blessedness, true happiness, comes from seeing Jesus as your greatest treasure, not your present circumstances. And friends, we are all prone to fail at this point. All of us. I know that my own tendency has been to look for happiness in empty, wrong places. I've made that mistake too many times to count. I've leaned on things never intended, never designed to give me full joy and satisfaction. And those can even be good things. They don't have to be bad things. They can be good things. And I've leaned too heavily upon those things at times in my life. to to somehow bring me happiness and a sense of blessing by God. 
when Christ should be the source of that. Christ alone. Friend, could it be that you're here today, you're leaning too heavy on the things of this world to make you happy? You're not just leaning, maybe, some of you. Maybe you've fully bought in. Could it be that you're leaning way too much on the things of this world to make you happy? He clarifies our present. And it could be tempting for some of you to look at certain aspects of suffering. I mean, he identifies those who are poor, hungry, weeping. Those are persecuted. You, you, could, you could identify some of these challenges and struggles in our lives and, and concerns that we have as somehow as if God is cursing you. He's taking these things from you or he's, he's, he's not giving you what you thought you wanted or, or needed and, and somehow you think he's, he's punishing you. Friends, we need to clarify the present. But he does clarify the present by a second thing. He does it by prioritizing the future. He also reminds us here that our gaze and our sights should and must look well beyond this world. Notice he says to the blessed, he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. If you are a disciple, verse 20, you may be poor, verse 20b, but listen, don't see that material poverty as an indication of something you like because you have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has invaded this world. It's yet to be in its full state. It's kind of a now but not yet reality that we experience. But listen, he's saying, listen, if, if you've put your hope in Christ, if you're a disciple, if you're living your life, verse 22, on account of the Son of Man, if you're committed to Christ, that's where we get the, the, this idea that we're leaning more on the, the word disciple and those who live on account of the Son of Man there to define that these are genuinely disciples, that they can't be everyone who's poor, everyone who's hungry, everyone who weeps, everyone who's persecuted must be a Christian. That's not the case. He's talking about Christians who happen to be these things. He says, listen, don't grow weary. Don't grow discouraged because yours is the kingdom. You may be even under an oppressive regime. But friend, don't forget you belong to a kingdom that's eternal. Your king is the king of kings and lord of lords. Notice he says, again, he's prioritizing the future. He says, you may be hungry now. Blessed, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. There's coming a day when you will lack nothing. You will have you, you, you will have no need to be seeking to be satisfied or renewed in some way because in fullness you will have everything. Be perfectly satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Maybe it's weeping because of persecution or for other reasons. For you shall laugh. Friends, when we, when we go, when we, when we are recipients of that everlasting kingdom and when, when we're brought to that that eternal home. We're told that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no weeping. 
And then he says, of those who are persecuted, those who are hated, those who are excluded, those who are reviled and spurned on account of Christ. He says, not just blessed, he says blessed, but he says you should rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy. That's even a command for Baptist. Leap for joy when you're persecuted on account of Christ because your reward is great in heaven. They can, they can kill you. They can do anything they, can, they want to to you here, but that doesn't remove you from everlasting blessing. Just reminds you of the example of Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, listen, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. He had a heavenward gaze. He, he had an eternal perspective. He was not rooting his, his heart and soul in the pleasures and things of this world, but rather looking beyond them. The language just blows our mind. He, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Friends, the Lord wants us to look beyond this world. That's one of the things he's doing here. He's equipping his people to look beyond the things of this life that we might find our joy and our satisfaction and our happiness in him and in eternity, not in the present. And friends, he does that through speaking of these blessings and he does that by speaking of these woes. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What are you who are full now? You shall be hungry. What are you who laugh now? For you shall mourn and weep. What are you when all people speak well of you? For so their fathers did the false prophets. Again, we gotta be careful there. We can say, well, compared to the rest of the world, I am materially rich. Before I came here and Adam preached too long, I was full. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for the fathers did the false parts. So, so, so you must understand that those who he's speaking of who are rich and full and laugh and are spoken well of, these are not in and of themselves bad things. He's not saying it's sinful to be rich. He's not saying it's sinful to be full or it's sinful to laugh or it's sinful to be spoken well of. He's referring to these things of those who are detached from being a disciple and those who are detached, who are not living this kind of life rooted on the Son of Man, on account of the Son of Man. He's saying if you root your hope in this life, if your pursuit of happiness is found in riches, you may well find it. But he says you've had your consolation. If that's what you're living for, have a great education, have a great big house and all of these wonderful things which many of us enjoy, not wronging of themselves, but if that's what you live for, 
And he's saying, you've got what you wanted. You've got what you wanted. You've got your consolation. But there's coming a day when even those who are full, you will be hungry. His point is, if you live for the things of this world, if you seek to try to find your happiness in the things of this world, you may very well find it, but there's coming a day when you will be miserable. It's kind of a short-term pleasure, long-term pain versus short-term pain, long-term pleasure. Friends, it's a good reminder to all of us, this this text, that it is far too easy. It is far too easy in this life to rest too much of our hope, too much of our happiness in the things of this world which cannot satisfy you. We all do this. There's not a a person here that hasn't been tempted, not tempted right now even, to find some source of happiness in things of this world. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong not to even enjoy the things of this life. We should enjoy even the short term, the the, the circumstantial, the the things that come and go. We We should enjoy them while we can, of course. But we shouldn't root our hope and our happiness in them. Jesus is telling his followers to look to something far greater and far more lasting. Friend, I just ask you, would you rather experience short-term pain but enjoy long-term pleasure? Or would you prefer prefer the short-term pleasure and long-term pain? One writer wrote as a summary of this text, it said, so bless, he summarized it in this way, basically saying, blessed are you even when all is taken from you and yet you still have Christ. But woe to you who have everything now but don't have Christ. Here's a good summary of what this passage is getting at. Friends, happiness is everyone's pursuit. And at some point, you will find happiness. You'll be happy. Question is, is it a lasting happiness? Is it a happiness that gets you through this life into the next because your hope is rooted in Christ and being with him forever? Or is it a happiness that ebbs and flows with every circumstance that you experience? Friend, all you need to find true blessedness, to find lasting happiness, is to look to Christ and to lean on him and to trust in him. You may not have much in this world, but if you have him, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to counsel our souls, to instruct us in righteousness. Father, I thank you that you've used this word even in my own life this week just to consider the things that I often cling to, things that I often look to, to to provide some sense of satisfaction and happiness.
and how often I neglect finding that satisfaction fully in Christ. Father, would you search all of our hearts this morning? Would you call us to repentance? Would you renew our joy and our happiness and our sense of blessing in Christ? Lord, it may be that some who are here today that they've been looking for happiness for a long time and they've not yet found it and realized this morning that that comes in Christ, that that comes through knowing Jesus. And Lord, that they may want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and walk with him. Lord, I pray that if that is the case in their hearts, that, that you would give them just the awareness of that, that there would be opportunity even now, even today, to talk with someone about what it means to follow after Jesus to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Christ as their hope. Father, for the believers who are here, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would help us not cling to fleeting things, but that we would cling to Christ and that our hope and that our happiness would be evident to all around us, not because of our things, but because of Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.